Hey everybody, the December 2022 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And Happy New Year, everybody. Hopefully you had a good 2022. Hopefully you will have a good 2023. And... Maybe we're going to start that out by telling you about a whole bunch of games that we played in the month of December. Jen and I got 21 games to the table, which meant we ended strong, and I'm about to count them down for you, starting with our least favorite, ending with our most favorite. But before we get to that, I've got a little bit of something from the contributors. You may not have heard from them much in December. They kind of took the month off and went their own way. Doesn't mean they stopped playing games. So I think we've got some video from Shay and from Kimberly. They're going to tell you about some other good stuff that you might be interested in in the future. So without any further ado, Shay, uh, take it away. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, happy holidays. Um, so I didn't make any uh, videos for Rado this month. I've been really busy on a project for my own channel, but I did go to PAX Unplugged and I played a lot of great games while I was there. Um, so I actually played so many games that I don't really need to talk about all of them, which is why even though uh, these games are gonna be ranked, uh, my these are basically the cream of the crop for me. So every single one of these I would recommend. Um, so uh, at the bottom of my list, we've got Sea Salt and Paper. This is a uh, set collection game with some really, uh, uh, adorable art. It's called origami themed, and this is it's got the uh, sort of standard uh, kind of set collection aspect to it, where you know you're trying to get a handful of uh, really good combos of cards, but it has a really interesting mechanic whereby any player can end the round sort of whenever they want, and they they can choose whether they end it immediately or they let everyone else have a turn. And if they let everyone else have a turn, there is a higher risk of someone else, you know getting the last cards they need to have a better hand of cards that round. Um, but if you still have uh, a better score than everyone else, then you get better rewards. It was a really interesting system. The reason it's at the bottom of my list is because I only got to play like a one round of it. I didn't get to play a full game, but I really want to try. So uh, Sea Salt and Paper uh, was my number five. So my number four is a Japanese game called Roulette Taking Game. Sort of a, a, a play on the trick-taking uh, genre because this is a trick-taking game that is also based off of roulette. Um, you're not spinning uh, a wheel and rolling a ball or anything, you're just playing cards, but you are using the roulette betting table uh, to figure out what you are going to, uh, you know, how you're going to score at the end of the round because the uh, what you're betting on is what card will win at the end of a full round of playing through the, I think, 36 cards in the deck. And each uh, card in the deck is based off of you know, one of the 36 spots on the roulette uh, wheel. Oh, probably 38 then because there's also the zero and the double zero and some other things. So, like, it's a really fascinating take on the uh, trick-taking genre, and it had some really interesting uh, interplay between you know the cards that you're playing and uh, the betting system, because every time you won a trick in the middle of uh, the game, 
you, it allowed you to place a bet. So you want to win tricks so that you can place bets, but then you also want to be placing good bets. You want to be placing bets that you think are actually going to pay out because you are still betting on what card is going to win the last trick. So it had a really fascinating concept, and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed playing it. it the design of it was very minimalistic, which I kind of liked. It was, it was kind of good. It also uh, was a little... I mean, just the fact that it's just called roulette-taking game it was, it was a little silly to me, but I, I thought it was really cool. And definitely, if you like trick-taking games, especially, like, interesting takes on it, absolutely check that one out. Uh, my number three was a very strange game called Kazooka. And I had never heard about this. I had just randomly uh, was, was asked to, to play it, and I was like, okay, sure, I'll try it. And it had this, like, kind of Candyland-looking uh, uh, lane of spaces, but... What the game was, was really fascinating. And the concept is you are animals trying to escape from a zoo. And you uh, are working together trying to make an escape plan. But the way that you make this escape plan is by collectively having, uh, you know, uh, cards of the same color. Everyone's going to get, you know, cards of multiple different colors. But you can't talk to each other about what you have. So you're trying to collect, you're trying to sort of bet on what you have the most of. And this ends up playing out like a cooperative version of Skull, which was very fascinating to me. So you'll have this, uh, on this map, all these different spaces, the different spaces will have like one green, one red, two blue, something like that. So on each turn, you'll place a little token on one of the spaces, and that's saying, I think collectively we can get two blues out of all the cards that we all have in our hands. And... The other person, you know, the next person might see a blue in their hands and they think, okay, well, if they have at least two, I probably have one more, so we could probably get to three, so I'll go to the next one. But then the next person, you know, maybe they don't have any blues in their hand, but they, maybe they have like four reds. So it's like, okay, well, I can't go all the way to the four red space because that's too far along. You can only go by segments. So they'll go to like, I'll, I'll say three red, and then maybe we'll continue that way. But you're trying to re uh, reach that like consensus without ever actually telling each other what you have. So that was, I thought, really cool. And then there's some little extra bits where if you, you know, you'll get pretty far, but you won't reach it to the end. So at one point, someone will call off the plan, and depending on how far you got, you'll sort of level up, uh, which will get you more cards uh, and some like random, or some wild cards that potentially have. And then some of the cards that you'll be working with will just be um, face up, kind of like Texas Hold'em. So you know that those cards are going to be included. In, uh, in your play. And then different animals that you play as have, play as have different uh, powers. So it was just a really interesting game. It was a lot more engaging than I thought it was from, from looking at the game, but uh, I definitely recommend checking it out. I don't know if it has the staying power of uh, some other games, but I was definitely interested the, the time that I played it. So Kazooka was my number three. Now my number two was a game that I didn't actually play at PAX Unplugged, and this is the game that I have been kind of immersed in this whole month because I have been making uh, a tutorial for it on RTFM. I was commissioned by Ager Games to make a tutorial for a game called Europa Universalis, The Price of Power. And this is a big, grand strategy 4X game set in medieval Renaissance Europe. Uh, now, this is based off of the Europa Universalis series of uh, computer games, these grand strategy games in the, uh, in the style of like Europa Universalis, it's also uh, Crusader Kings and Stellaris, that kind of grand strategy games, like oh, a step up from like civilization and that kind of stuff. Not games that I've generally uh, been interested in uh, on the computer game, but um, 
I got a chance to uh, play it on in the board game version and you know make the tutorial for it, and I have really gotten into it. It is a, it's an enormous experience, and this is coming from someone who loves Twilight Imperium. This game was a lot, but it was so engaging that after playing uh, through it, after sort of muddling through the first game of it with my friends, we all were like, okay, we want to play this again for sure. And on top of that, there's tons of different scenarios that you can play as, even though each scenario. It's not that it follows the same route, but has the same like setup, and you sort of feels like you're starting in the middle of history because you are. It starts off in like the 1400s, and you know the different European powers have settled in certain ways. So you always have the same setup depending on your scenario. But there's a bunch of different scenarios, so you can all try different things, and it just has a lot to it. It is, you know political intrigue, it's also a lot of warfare, it's also a lot of exploration, and there's just a ton to it, so I, if you're looking for a huge grand strategy game that can go from like two to six players, this is a, a big one to check out. And depending on when this uh, video comes out, I may or may not have a tutorial that has just come out, or maybe will come out very soon about it. Um, so that was my number two. But my number one, number one game that I played this month uh, is called Endeavor Deep Sea. Now, this was a prototype, um, which is, I think, telling uh, as to like why this is so high on my list. This wasn't even finished, but I had so much fun playing it that I had to, uh, I had to include it in the list and I had to put it at the top because it was just so entertaining when I played it. Uh, this is a sequel to Endeavor Age of Sail. I haven't played that version of it, um, but from what I understand, the mechanics of it are, are uh, somewhat similar, but the gameplay ends up being very different. For one, the theme of it is completely different. You're not exploring, uh, it's not, you know, that kind of colonization aspect of it, which some people had uh, some issues with, rightfully so, I think, but this is completely different. This is uh, underwater exploration and conservation, and it's all about exploring life, you know, diving deep into the sea, and recruiting specialists to help you do that. It has a very engaging engine building system whereby every turn you're getting a new specialist that can help you out. It gives you new actions you can do, but you're also bumping up a lot of different tracks that uh, will help you in certain ways. They you know, allow you to dive deeper into the ocean or uh, be more um, effective when you're working your conservation efforts or uh, allowing you to engage with more specialists as you're going through. It was a very satisfying combo building kind of system and I'm really excited to see how it, uh, it how it works when it's fully fleshed out when it's fully I shouldn't say fleshed out it's it's very close to being there they just had to work on a little bit of balancing uh, for the different mechanics but it's coming to Kickstarter early next year and I'm really excited to see it when it does I think it's gonna be a, a really a really cool game so that was my number one and those were the top games that I played this month uh, so that's all for me happy holidays everyone I'll see you next time bye Hey everybody, Kimberly here with my December roundup, and I have to say, I didn't have any run-throughs air in December, but boy have you got some really great games coming up in January and February from me. I'm just going to start with a, a handful of those. The very first one is Yanara's Fallen, and that is a dueling game that has more than meets the eye. So it's not just a big push and pull and kind of like a punch, punch, punch game. There's so much more strategizing and planning that goes into it, along with some really great set collection and special power activations. So definitely keep your eye out for Yanara's Fallen. And the other game 
of the lighter fare is from 25th Century Games and it's Donut Shop. And that game is going to be one that keeps coming out for me just because it's really fast, super shareable, and delicious looking. <laughs> so in Donut Shop, uh, players are just going to play down a card that has four different donuts depicted on it to a central playing area. And then you're going to try to box up those donuts and you want to box up a bunch of donuts at once because it gives you a whole big payout. But it's really hard because every different donut type in your box requires an order card that matches that type. So it's a, it's a, it's a really lovely light game that's super shareable and again, delicious. So those are coming up in January and February along with Another game that I'm excited to share, which is the expansion Eat of All for Nidavellir. Now, Nidavellir is just a stunning game. There's already been Thingvellir as one of the expansions, and Eat of All is now out. And I will be sharing that expansion with you, what it does, how it changes the game, how it adds to it, and all sorts of lovely things that will take you deep, deep into the dwarven minds with that lovely artwork. So those are the three games I've got coming up in the next couple months. But I also wanted to share with you just what I'm up to in December. I've been playing a whole lot of games and there are some that have kind of captured my attention uh, that I didn't mention on my top list of the year and on my channel just yet though. These are probably coming very soon on my channel. I am kind of enamored with Carnegie. <laughs> And I thought I would be. I really did. I even said so in my top uh, 10 for 2022. I had not had a chance to play it yet, but I thought that it was going to be something that just made my brain happy, and it does. There's this very interesting pairing of actions in a central playing area that one player gets to activate. And it means that they are selecting the action that's gonna happen and the location or the donation track that's gonna be triggered. And that pairing comes randomly at the beginning of the game, but players can see the tracks. And so there's this really fascinating start player choice that affects everybody else at the table. And then there is a player board that's individual and your work, you have workers that you're sending out to do particular jobs and tasks. And um, you are essentially trying to donate as much money and raise as much money as you can, uh, being uh, like a philanthropist like um, Carnegie. So that game to me is a heavier game that is super capturing my heart. I really, really like it. I think you probably know what I like the most of last year was Lacrimosa. If you want to check out my video review of the normal gameplay and the solo, please check that out. It is coming out on my channel Friday of the week right before we start the new year. I don't know what date that is, but it's the very end of December. So if you want to check out more about what I thought about Lacrimosa, please check that out. And then there's a light game that I want to share too. This is called Next Station London. And this just made a bunch of top 10 lists that I was watching and I got it and played it last night. And it's really delightful because I really like Get On Board, New York and London. Um, but this one is a draw. Um, you flip cards and you draw with colored pencils and you are going to be making tracks in a grid. Uh, and hopefully your tracks will, I mean, you can't cross each other um, across just like straight empty area, 
but you want to meet them in stations because that's going to earn you points and you want to cross the river. You want to cross the Thames. So there's just some lovely strategy here. It's light. It's super playable. I love the flip and write genre. And I think that Blue Orange did a great job with Next Station London. Uh, that's really it. I mean, I've been playing a bunch of games. I've been having tons of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm just now starting my first run through the campaign of Critical Foundation um, that Ashet Games has released, and I am thrilled. I'm so excited I got my group together, and we are actually playing that later this afternoon. So I'm just playing a bunch of games, having a great time, and loving my December, and I hope you are too. All right, I will see you uh, next month. Back to you. Okay, and continuing on with the rest of the contributors, uh, while we didn't see much from Shay and Kimberly this month, Amy and Maggie did do a run-through of the new Wingspan Asia expansion, which I gotta say, I think is the most ambitious thing that they have put out for Wingspan to date. And I certainly understand why Amy and Maggie say they would not play Wingspan as a two-player game without this new game-changer. It looks very, very cool, uh, and you might want to check it out. They did a great run-through of it. But, that wasn't all. Ruel uh, did a very, very special run-through with his wife, Michelle, appearing for the first time on the channel. The two of them had an incredibly charming run-through of Dog Park, which is just a very, very sweet game uh, all about taking your dogs for a walk. And if you're a dog lover like me and Jen, or Ruel and Michelle, it is one that is worth checking also. But we weren't done with Ruel either because he had a very, very special solo run-through he did for a very special game called Heading Forward. And I think this is one of those games that kind of blurs the line between board games and art, because this is about recovering from traumatic brain injury, and the designer himself was uh, somebody who went through this process in real life. And so he brought all his real-world experiences and turned it into what turns out to be a very interesting and compelling and very thematic game about day-to-day -day struggles and celebrating the little triumphs in life and trying to overcome adversity. Um, this is an absolutely beautiful game, and Ruel really brought it to life. So I highly recommend you check out his run-through for Heading Forward. It was a good month for Ruel. Uh, and... Otherwise, folks, I think that's about it. So, I should start talking about the uh, 21 games that Jen and I played. Although, before I get going, you may have noticed um, in Shay and Kimberly's videos that there was, wasn't a lot of video because they were covering games that hadn't been on the channel. That's going to be the case for a lot of the games I'm about to talk about as well. So, I just want to give a huge shout-out to uh, Board Game Geek for always being there for me. It's a very, very handy tool in a lot of ways, including it means that uh, I'll have some pictures to show of a bunch of the games that Jen and I played. So I just want to say thank you to Scott and all of his team at Board Game Geek and to all the people who take pictures of their games and upload them. Um, this month, I could not have done the show without you all. Okay, so without any further ado, let's get going. How about number 21, we talk a little bit about a universal truth. Now, do not get me wrong. Just because this came in at the top of my list doesn't mean this isn't a wonderful game. And um, it's basically got all the uh, drawing room intrigue of a great Jane Austen novel in uh, multi-use card form. In fact, very much like 
Oh, what's it? Uh, Glory to Rome. This ha- game lets you use cards to... Well, a card can represent you. You can play them to add more money to your dowry. You can play them to make more social connections uh, in the uh, you know the, the elite of you know Victorian-era London. You can uh, play them to unlock special powers by you know uh, be- becoming uh, proficient in, in whisk, or cricket, or politics, or poetry, or all kinds of things. You can play them to target somebody who you would like to fall in love with you, which is your actual goal. And you can also play them to do affectionate acts for those people. Every one of your cards in this game can be used for multiple things. Plus, on top of that, every card has a cool special power in the middle that can be used. So, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a game with as many cool special use combinatorial games. And then on top of that, it also features a very, very cool card drafting system to get these cards in your hand based on a rondelle. And I love rondelles. So why does this come in at the bottom of my list instead of at the top? Because it's really good. The only problem is those special powers I was talking about, quite a few of them can be really aggressive. When I say, um, you know, backroom intrigue, I'm talking real skullduggery stuff. And that was the thing that broke Jens in my heart. Now, the game comes with a lot of variants you can play. You can actually turn off most of the features and make this a game that you could play with anybody. It's like a nice gateway game. But I want to play it at all with all the bells and whistles turned on. But unfortunately, that means turning on some really cutthroat elements that just didn't work for me and Jen. Um, and it is for that reason that it comes at the bottom. If those special powers weren't quite so cutthroat, this probably would have made my top five of the month uh, because it's so wonderful and thematic and engaging. But as it is, it comes in at number 21 of the month, A Universal Truth. No, oh, and it's at this point I should go to number 20 on the list, but here's the deal, folks. I just found out that I made a terrible mistake. I totally missed a paragraph in the rules that radically changed the game, and I feel like I need to pull number 20 off the list, go back to the table, play it again with Jen, because I think I'm going to like it quite a bit more. So, in a bit of an unprecedented turn of events, we're going to skip from number 21 to number 19 on the list, and I'll get back to the game in question in next month's roundup. Oh! Okay, let's continue on then to number 19, Time of Empires. And now, this one surprised the heck out of me. It's from Pearl Games, um, and it is a real-time civilization game along the lines of Through the Ages or Nations, you know, where you're doing all the stuff. You're exploring, expanding, exploiting, and exterminating as you play through round after round with real historical people and um, events that will build up a civilization from antiquities to modern day. All the stuff you expect. You've seen it in a lot of games. What makes this one stand out? real-time gameplay. And that shouldn't work, but it does, and it's brilliant. Um, Through, what do you call them, Um, hourglass workers, this worker placement game where we are doing everything I just talked about and expanding, uh, you know, making new inventions, uh, you know, increasing our empire, uh, you know, playing uh, area control games invading each other's territories, tearing stuff down, uh, competing on all kinds of fronts. I love this game. I love it for its ambition and its scope, and I love that it seems to pull off the impossible. Because I mean, you know, normally real-time games have to be clean and simple and elegant to work. Whereas this game, I mean, this game is clean and simple and elegant, and yet we end up doing really big, cool, complex stuff during the real-time portions of the game. And I really appreciate it. The only reason it comes in solo. Not surprisingly, if you watch the rest of this roundup, is it does feature a healthy dollop of, oh, well, it'd be a real shame if that capital city of yours burned to the ground, wouldn't it? 
and oh, you weren't paying attention, and boom, I moved in, and at the end of the time period, oh, you didn't have enough defenses, and I, I sack your capital, kind of stuff. It's interesting, this game probably comes closer to feeling like a, a real-time strategy war game like Warcraft or Command & Conquer than any other vi- board game I've played because in those games, if you're not paying attention, people can sneak up on you and take your stuff. And that can happen here because it's not um, stately and refined. Now, I should say, the game does come with turn-based rules, and those work really well also. I'm very impressed by them. But really, those are a way to teach the uh, how to play the game before you start playing real-time. Real-time is where it's at. It's brilliant. And if this game came with a co-op variant, it would be in my top five easily. If it came with a variant where it said, hey, you know what? We're in different land masses. And we can just, every round, we can set aside a certain number of our troops to say, oh, I'm just going to send them overseas. And whoever sends the most overseas, there's a point skirmish. And we're not actually stealing and destroying and you know tearing each other's sandcastles down. If there were a couple of ways, this could have been a, a top 10 game of 2022 for me, easily. Because... The real-time mechanisms, the civilization building is very satisfying, really smartly done. Watch my run-through. Jen appears in the run-through, if you ever want to see if she's a real person. You can see her right there, in the little tiny picture-in-picture. But um, those are the things that uh, keep it low on the list for me, unfortunately. Interestingly, uh, when uh, we did our Jen Jogs, Jen also does monthly rankings of all the games. She ranked this really high. And it made me remember, oh, Jen loves Tigers and Euphrates, too. Because Jen has always been a little bit more comfortable with attacking and destroying than I am. And so she ranked it high. I rank it high, except for the fact that it's just not a good fit for me. So number 19, the time of empires. Okay, let's move on to number 18, Holly Jolly. Hey folks, uh, it's a new year. Happy new year again. And uh, it was Christmas time. Jen and I thought we'd play this very popular uh, I've heard really good things about this uh, little card drafting game set around a Christmas tree. And man, it works really well. It delivers from uh, Ben Pinchback and Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. I mean, very accomplished designers in their own right. What's a good picture that shows the whole tree? There's a picture that shows the tree. All right. Um, as heart. Uh, this is a game where every turn you're going to grab one card from a display of three. That card has a numeric value. You are going to um, use that numeric value in combination with the numeric values of the three cards at the heart of the tree to come up with a specific number. Like, um, I can't quite see these are very small, but two plus one equals three. Okay, so I combine this card with that card. That's a three. And that lets me um, get this Santa card, this decoration that has a picture of Santa. I should make this picture a bit bigger so that would help see. And so I, I, this is how you draft cards. You grab one of these cards, combine them with the center cards to be able to get the decoration cards or the present cards under the tree. And there's all kinds of different set collection stuff, special powers on the different cards, and it's very sharp. Uh, there's a little bit of push your luck because you know sometimes the uh, pre- sometimes you know what the presents are, sometimes you don't, and there are some lumps of coal that might show up in there and all that. Uh, charming, cute. Um, but ultimately very lightweight. Uh, uh, you know, this is designed for families to play together at uh, Christmas time. And it works great for that. I don't think it's something that Jen and I would necessarily want because it's a little bit too light for us. In the future, we'd probably go with ugly Christmas sweater. Um, but <clears throat> we enjoyed our time and it certainly felt very appropriate um, for the Yuletide spirit. Number 18, Holly Jolly. Okay, 
Then let's talk about number 17 on the list, my little Everdell. Okay, so this comes in low because it is, because of what it is, because it does what it sets out to do. It tries to take the rich, complex worker placement, um, tableau building, card combo gameplay of Everdell, one of the most popular, acclaimed, uh, and successful games in recent years. It's gotten so many expansions and the big box that just came out. I mean, the biggest big box of all time. Amazing. So it tries to capture all the feel of Everdell and scrunch it down into a game, you know, for kids, the little ones. Um, it's still a worker placement game, but the uh, the core worker placement is really simple. You send a worker out to get a twig or to get a card. Um, you play the cards out there. There are four or five different types of cards, ones that will give you special powers, ones that will be our engine builders, ones that uh, give you in-game scoring opportunities, and it works. And quite frankly... I didn't expect to, the Gen I would enjoy it at all, but we were really surprised. Um, you know, in spite of the fact that it's still probably a little bit more light that, weight than we want, I would actually say this game is more complex than Ticket to Ride. And it's for that reason I don't quite understand. The box literally says it's for ages six and up. And if you go watch my final thoughts, I believe there's a version of this game that six-year-olds could play. But there are certain cards you would have to take out because they're surprisingly complex. Over the course of this game, you're going to get a bunch of cards played. You might have three or four special powers you're juggling at any given time, and two unique um, in-game bonuses you're trying to chase after, and you're trying to do engine building as well. All this stuff can really pile up, and you can get a really complex game going on. And I think some of the cards are maybe a little bit too much. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't hang out with six-year-olds. I haven't played games with six-year-olds since I was six years old myself. So I might be um, uh, getting it wrong, but it really felt to me like the game is beautiful. Absolutely wonderful to look at. Taking all the art of Everdell, which was already great from Tom Bosley, and making new versions of it where they're kid versions of all the characters and places and stuff. It's lovely. It's charming. And... I would say it's about roughly the same uh, depth level of a ticket to ride. And uh, that surprised me. Still a little bit too light for me and Jen, but more going on than we thought. We enjoyed our time with it. Wasn't a keeper for us. And again, I would think it would work for 10-year-olds, maybe? Maybe? 11-year-olds? 8-year-olds? 9-year-olds? 6-year-olds? I don't know. But I, I do not know about childhood cognitive development. So maybe I'm totally uh, misguided. I'm sure that pretty much everybody covered this. So you can look at a few other channels. But at the end of the day, it comes in at number 17 for us because it is still a little bit too light. But oh my gosh, so charming. So beautiful. Really enjoyed our time with it. Okay. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Then let's move on to number 16, 
Spacecraft. Now, um, this is a, uh, a cool little game all about... There's two halves to the game. We uh, Most turns, you have a, uh, a token, and you're moving around a 4x4, four four, although I think it gets bigger at a higher player count, a 5x5 five five grid of stacks of junk in a junkyard. And on your turn... You can move a certain number of steps and um, orthogonally, and wherever you land, you grab one of these pieces of junk. And the pieces of junk have different art, and they also have different weights. You put that junk in your um, trunk, in your uh, in your uh, wheelbarrow, and you can only carry so much weight. So eventually, I mean, you're, you're running around trying to get the ideal things you need, but dealing with weight restrictions, maybe you can't afford to get two of the things you want because that would overweigh your bear, and you'll have to make multiple trips because eventually you're like, okay, I can't carry any more stuff around. I'm going to leave the junkyard. And when you leave the junkyard, you have the opportunity to convert all the scraps you picked up and turn them into rocket parts. And the interesting thing is, the different types of scraps you have bought give you access to different columns. So if I've got some duct tape, that means, hey, if I use duct tape plus whatever else I grabbed, um, I could get stuff out of the duct tape uh, column of things, where there's um, you know uh, fuselages and uh, booster rockets, because we're trying to make rockets to go to the moon, of course. And uh, the interesting thing is, uh, when you're basically doing all of this, uh, you know, this set collection, all you know, all this tile drafting through this cool little uh, mini game. You're trying to plan for, right, okay, when I come out, I can only get two pieces of the most. And you're trying to build your rocket as fast as you can uh, to try to hit certain uh, public goals that everybody is chasing after. And um, and then, after you've done that, you've converted your junk. Maybe you don't use all... You save some junk for later. Um, and uh, and then you go back in the junkyard, you try to collect more stuff. It's a good, solid little game. Uh, another one, I think, would be great for families. Pretty easy to teach how to play the game. I think, honestly, I think this is going to be better for six-year-olds than my little Everdell when it boils right down to it. Uh, charming, the uh, rockets you end up building are really quirky and odd-shaped and, uh, you know, and, and just... Uh just just fun. There's a sense of fun and whimsy about everything in this game. And we enjoyed it, but it's a little bit too lightweight for us. Although there's an interesting uh, twist to it. The game has two different variants you can play um, that have to do with the different types of objective cards you're chasing. The uh, advanced version of the game is whenever you come out of the junkyard and you start buying, uh, turning your scrap into pieces, you can also lay claim in kind of a little area control game to the different scoring opportunities. And so, the more somebody says, hey, I'm really going to try and score a lot of points on the... uh, the uh, getting red pieces for my ship. There's an interesting thing where you can push your luck too much. Because if I've got a lot of red pieces for my ship, and I have put a couple of things on there, the more times somebody activates one of these uh, bonus point things, the more valuable it gets. Until it's activated too many times, and then all of a sudden, those particular pieces become not worthless, but suddenly they're dropping value significantly. So there's this really delicate balancing act. If somebody can see I'm getting a lot of red pieces, um, I don't want to tip my hat. I don't want to rush right out and make the red really valuable because then it's just going to be very easy for somebody else to say, oh, they'll tank it because they don't have a lot of red and they don't want me to get all those points. So there's a really interesting kind of, uh, you know, 
how long can you afford to wait before you make your move thing? So that's the advanced way. But to me, that was a simple way to play. The more complex way to play is instead, there's a big collection of, hey, um, build with this combination of parts or that combination of parts. And there's like a constant flow of we're racing to complete individual mini objectives. And honestly, I think I like that one more. And I don't understand why they said that's the easier one, when in fact, um, it seemed like it was the more complex one to play. But either way, whichever one you play with, I still think this is a good gateway style game. If that's what you're looking for, it's not what we're looking for which is why it comes in at number 16, Spacecraft. Okay, now let's move on to number 15, Dice Conquest. Now, this is a fast-playing, cooperative, dice-chucking, fantasy monster battler. And it works really well. Jen and I enjoyed our time with it. Every time you play, you have a unique player with, with special powers that say, hey, if I activate sixes, I get to do this. If I activate um, things, um, you know, odd numbers, I get to do that, whatever. Um, so... Uh, and as you beat monsters, we take them and tuck them under our character cards to reveal that we have access to more and more special powers that we can start manipulating, um, which means we have different ways that we want to draft dice to activate them, to activate our special powers, to fight more monsters. Because every round, more monsters keep coming out until we get to the final big super boss monster. We're trying to level up as fast as we can to beat them. Um, the interesting thing about the game is it comes with a full set of D&D style dice. A D4, a D6, a D8, a D10, a D12, and a D20. I believe that's it. I believe it comes with seven dice. A full set of them. And every round, we roll all those dice. And then we just take turns grabbing them. And so I might be in a desperate strait. I, on my turn, I need to grab a three to put it on this monster because we can only put odd numbers and um, and we can't put numbers over seven. So I need a three or a five. That's the only thing I put here. And if we can put that on there, we beat this monster. Here's the problem. We just rolled. We got a three. It was on our D20. That is such a huge waste of a d20, because that d20 could do 20 points of damage or 15 points of damage if we re-roll it and you know, hit it somewhere else. But we need that three right now. Are we going to waste that d3 to put it on this monster and finish it and unlock that special power? Maybe, but then we're not going to get that d20 back until next round, and we might be in real trouble down the road. Because obviously there's special powers about re-rolling and setting dice and all the kinds of stuff you would expect. It's really clever. We were really surprised. We really liked it quite a bit. We had a fun time. Uh, it was nice and challenging, not too challenging, but uh, you know, a good fun time. Really simple. A great restaurant game is what my wife said. She could totally see because it is just literally a deck of cards, uh, seven dice, and each player has a card that is a little uh, life hit, hit point tracker for each player. Yeah, we liked it. Um, I would if, if this game ever got an expansion. I would love to come back to it because I'd love to see some more complex stuff because the stuff that's there is nice, but it's fairly simple and straightforward, which makes the whole game, again, it's a gateway-style game. Honestly, I think the reason this exists is to sell sets. The, the dice were beautiful. They were absolutely gorgeous-looking, lovely marbled dice. I think it's to sell these sets of D&D uh, &D sets of dice to uh, encourage people to try to uh, play D&D &D dice more. Um, and it, it just happened to have a fun game with it, too. A little bit um, you know, lightweight for me and Jen to keep playing over and over again. I know it's a real repeating uh, concept, but we did really enjoy it. I'd happily play it again. Not necessarily keep it for us, but I want to keep an eye on this if um, there's ever an experience expansion that adds some more stuff, I could see wanting to come back to number 15, Dice Conquest. Or if I had friends who love fantasy stuff and just wanted to play a fun, fast little game, really good stuff. Okay, 
Let's move on to number 14 now. Dominion Allies. Okay. Which I was certainly excited to try. I have not played a new uh, expansion of Dominion since... Was the last one Menagerie? I think so. I think that's right. Um, and I really love Menagerie. Menagerie is probably one of my favorite uh, expansions of all time. And I was certainly excited going in. Let's see, what kind of pictures of stuff do we have to show here? Uh, hey, there's a bunch of cards. That'll do. It's a bunch of cards, although they're very tiny. Oh, wait, oh there they go. Okay. Oh, or they're in a foreign language, but that's okay. It's Dominion, folks. There's a bunch of cards. <clears throat> I think 30 or so new types of cards. So... I'm not going to explain how Dominion works. I assume everybody knows. People just want to know, okay, what does allies do new? They do a few things. The most important one is the allies themselves. And it's my favorite thing about the expansion. Uh, Every time you play, you grab a different random ally from, I think there's like 12 or 14 different allies. Uh, It's a common resource for everybody. And you use Dominion coins to keep track of favors. Everybody starts with a certain number of favors. Anytime you want on your turn, you can spend those coins to activate this universal action that um, affects everybody. And they're all cool Dominion-style actions that are very powerful and can really change up the feel of the game in in meaningful ways. And in addition to that, several of the new cards that you can buy in the market will allow you to accumulate more of these favor uh, coins that you could then um, use to activate the allies. That's the core thing. It is great. I loved everything about it. Uh, we played a couple different games, tried a few different... Uh, saw, I looked at a bunch of allies. Seems that's really awesome. Uh, they were right to put that on the box cover. It's the coolest thing about it. Next cool thing is, uh, I forget, I think there were three or four market decks that, um, this isn't the first time we've seen this where, hey, you know what? All, All the cards in this particular stack aren't the same. As you buy more cards, you get to more expensive more powerful ones deeper in the deck. We've seen this uh, before, but this game really tweaks it up a bit because for every one of those cards that belongs... I mean, there's a deck for villagers where you start out, oh, it's a peasant, and then it's a merchant, and then it's uh, the sheriff, and then it's the... I forget what. And there's like one for war. It starts with a fort, and then it becomes a cannon, and then it becomes... You know, so you can... The more of them you buy, or all players buy, the more they level up. But the thing is, every one of these cards has an... uh, I forget what the word is, a rotate or update function that when you use these cards, you can pick those stacks and say, hey, you know what? All the current level ones, bury them at the bottom. I want to go straight to the level twos. Or in the next time I play, I want to go straight to the level threes. So you don't have to wait and dig all the way through them. You can get to those more powerful things very quickly. Now, this is cool. It um, creates a more dynamic and constantly changing market than we've ever seen in Dominion, quite frankly. And that's a neat idea. I liked it in theory. In practice, it could be kind of frustrating, though, because, man, I've finally to the point. Yes, I'm finally to the point where I'm going to be able to buy that card. Uh, yeah, I've got the cards. I just, I just got to wait for my turn to come around. And then on your turn, you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to modify that deck. And the card I wanted to buy just disappeared. And now it's a different card that I don't want or I can't buy. And that's never happened in Dominion. Or at least not. Maybe there's some special effect that says, oh yeah, you want to buy that thing. I removed it from the game and replaced it with something else. And it happens a lot. And honestly... My least favorite thing about allies is this feels like the most 
aggressive and cutthroat expansion sent going all the way back to Intrigue. Um, because there are several just straight-out attacky attack cards, like Barbarians and stuff like that. It seems like there's a higher percentage of attack cards than we've seen in other recent expansions. And then this really cool idea can be used inadvertently um, to where you could really mess up your opponent without even realizing it. So it's kind of... I mean, that's cool. But it can be frustrating, and my wife found that very frustrating. And then the other thing is, there's a whole bunch of new cards, uh, you know, new um, ongoing effect cards, and all of that, new treasure cards, and uh, a lot of focus. A lot of them focus on choice. Do this or this or this or this or this or this. It really felt like sometimes we were overloaded with choices in this game. Really, we could do this or this or that or the other, and I've got three of those. Yeah, I don't think Jen has ever come closer to melting down than when. Playing Playing with um, the uh, more choices uh, uh, preset, uh, which was the first time we played it, and so I, I, I th- they were all fine, but a little of that goes a long way. So at the end of the day, um, you know, Dominion Allies comes in at number fourteen. It's a keeper, um, but mostly it's for the allies. I love the allies. I kind of love the uh, the 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 multi tier stacks. I th- those are neat. Um, but the, you know, the mainline cards, there, there, there weren't really many that say, like, oh, wow, I love these main cards too. So overall, it was pretty nice. I enjoyed it. Not my favorite, by a long shot, Dominion Allies. Okay, then let's move on to number 13. Monolith. Uh, now, this is a, a game just kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, I don't think there'd been any real advance uh, notice about it. Uh, cool Mini or not, just uh, started sending out to reviewers. I got a copy of it, and we sat down and played it. And uh, oh, from designer Phil Walker Harding, and it's very nice. But I mean, geez. They've done nothing to try to promote this game. Look, there are no decent pictures of it on Board Game Geek. Just a few fan-made pictures. Let me go on ahead and show one that kind of shows stuff. Okay, so there's a picture of the game. Um, thanks to oh no, uh, uh, thanks to Eric Martin. Um, apparently, Eric has a very beat up table he plays on. Anyway, I would have loved to seen some more fancy pictures I could show of the game, but this will get the job done. Uh, this is a polyomino game, but it is a three dimensional polyomino game because the uh, polyomino pieces that come in all kinds of shapes that seem very very similar to traditional Tetris fans um, can be stacked upwards in addition to spread out left. And right. And in fact, we are building on very, very tiny little 4x4 four four grids. So ultimately, the game is over once we, once one player has created a perfect cube by um, you know, laying all these things down, but also building upwards. And it's sharp. The, pr- the presentation of the game is lovely. All the polyomino pieces, I don't know if you can quite tell in this picture, are there any ones that show it a little bit better, have these wonderful little etched runes on them that look really, really nice. And um, there's a million... In- the interesting thing about the game is, I mean, this is not the first time we've seen polyomino games. This is not the first time we've seen stackable 3D uh, cube-making polyomino games. But what's really interesting about this game is, you have the opportunity to grab these score chits that are on this central board. And as soon as you grab one, you install it on one of the four sides of your little player board. And what that means is, at the end of the game, you will score that many points if that side of your final cube um, does whatever needs to be done. Um based on what you chose. Or, uh, and I, th- I think that's cool. It's, it, what is it? It's um, that, uh, you know, I got, in this picture right here, somebody put a 14. That means they are going to have 14 um, of one color on that side of the cube before it's done. And you can see on the other side, they've tried to put an 11. They're trying to put 14 of one color, 11 of another color on the other side. And that's 
a really cool puzzle. Very fun. And here's the deal. Jen loved this game. Um, and I thought it was very cool, too. Uh, my only problem with it is the reason it comes in so high at 13 is because it's a pure abstract game. And really, at the end of the day, I'd rather be playing thematic Euros. But if I loved abstracts more, this would be a top 10 of the, uh, of the month. It'd be a top five, even. Because Phil Walker-Harding... He does great tile land games. You know, he's Mr. Baron Park. And, um, you know, taking it into three dimensions, but with this really cool push your luck because you want to grab those tokens as fast as you can so you can get the big points. But then you've got to commit. And, um, you know, trying to make sure you've got the right number of colors on each side is mucho challenging and uh, very, very fun and puzzly. So if you like abstract games, or if you just like really wonderful productions of three-dimensional, um, you know, if you want to build a Rubik's Cube out of Tetris pieces uh, that looks lovely and is in very puzzly, you might want to check out number 13 of the month, Monolith. Okay, then let's go on to number 12 of the month, Wayfarers of the South Tigris. And I suspect this is the one that's going to give me the most grief online. People are going, what? Why isn't this year in your top three? It's fantastic. Folks, it is fantastic. It's the latest from Sam McDonald and Shem Phillips of Garp Hill Games. It's the beginning of the new trilogy after we had the North Seas trilogy and the West Kingdoms trilogy. Now we're going to have the South Tigris trilogy. <coughs> and like most of all the games that have come before, it is super sharp, a wonderful, fun uh, collections of Euro mechanisms that really makes you, um, you know, approach things in new and different ways. I love so many things about this game. I love the uh, shared worker pool where we're constantly, through our actions, creating opportunities for other people to get workers that we give up. Um, I love the fact that there are dice worker placement in this game too, but we can reprogram die faces to have different special powers. You know, I I love the race for bonus points on the. I love almost everything about this game. In fact, this game could have been, honestly, my game of the month, and it could have made my top 10 games of the year. Except for one thing. One of the elements we have in this game, okay? I mean, this game is you overflows with opportunities to trigger all kinds of really cool combo actions where you get all these little baby bonuses that you can use in different ways to set yourself up for future combos. One of the baby bonuses is you can deploy your little influence tokens, which are these little asterisk-looking tokens. Now, the main use for them is to deploy them on the guilds because then that means we can use the guilds to activate special powers when we need them to manipulate dice and do stuff. Or there's also an area control thing for having your influence on the guilds. That's all great. Love it. But you will also put your in situations sometimes where you can put them on the cards. And this is a card drafting game where um, if you can identify a card I am desperate to grab because I need it for my engine that I'm building. It's the perfect one. I've waited half the game to get it. Um, and you get the opportunity to put your influence token out. You put that on the card I want. And what that means now is... If I want to get that card, that card now has a tax on it, and I have to pay taxes to you. I have to pay everything I had to. And these cards are expensive. They're already hard to get. And now you've made it just a little bit harder just to bleed me. And the thing is, this little bonus is one of the most common bonuses you will see in the game. It just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And every time we got this, we'd have to oh, wait. Let me try and figure out what hurts you the most. What do you want the worst? What do you want so bad? Oh, I think you want that one. Okay, I'll put it there. And you're like, Urgh. okay, fine. Great. There's nothing fun about this. It totally breaks the flow of the game. Jen and I got to the point where we would say, I've got another one of these. Could you just tell me what you want so I don't have to spend three minutes figuring it out? And Jen would say, oh, it's this one. Okay, boom, there. You now have to pay me a coin when you want to get that thing. And I 
hated this so much. I just, it serves no purpose. It slows down the game. It's, um, you know, just spiteful taxation of your opponents for no good reason. It just is completely inconsistent with any other element of the game. And the game already shows, hey, there's really cool things we can do with this that are fun and interesting and engaging. Or there's these dick moves that we can do with them that just keep coming up over and over again. And that killed the game for me. I'm, it breaks my heart because if it weren't for that one decision, and it would be so easy to house rule. There's, I mean, I, I post about this in my final thoughts, and people said, well, you could do this or this or this or this. Yeah, I could. Or the designers could because, hey, you know what? I'll just go and play a game where I'm not constantly asked to evaluate how can I hurt my wife the most because that's fun for some reason. I don't understand why that influence taxation of other players is there. If it weren't for that, this would have made my top 10 games of the year. But as it is, it comes in at number 12 on the list. The Wayfarer's South Talkers. And again, folks, I have to remember, remember, I'm a super care bear. Most people think it's not that big a deal. And they're probably right. I may be too overly sensitive to it, but for me, it was a game killer for Wayfarers. Okay, let's go on to a number 11 on the list, Lacrimosa, which um, is a brilliant game uh, all about the uh, after the death of Mozart. Sorry, it's a second. I'm, my throat is quite dry. I'm still sick. Uh, excuse me. Thank you. That helps. Uh, uh, my honey water from my honey is still warm. Let me get one more sip of that, actually. <laughs> okay. So, um, Lacrimosa is all about, after the death of Mozart, he had his great Lacrimosa, uh, one of his requiems, unfinished. And um, so we are his former patrons who are trying to hire the best composers to finish it, uh, to... You know, really, to, f to finish our friend's work, but also to increase our own glory, of course, because that's what we do in Euros. We chase glory. Um, fortune glory, kid, um, in the form of economic machinations. That's Euros. Um, anyway, though, so there's an interesting twist to this, though, because the um, the widow of Mozart is trying to write a, uh, a memoir. And so we are splitting our time between investing in um, current day composers to uh, do kind of this weird proxy battle area control on one third of the board that represents the sheet music of the Lacrimosa, which is a really interesting area control game, really unusual, where we're kind of investing in the composers who maybe will become the leads and therefore we score points off of them. Kind of like almost a stock dividend kind of thing. So we're trying to do that in the present, but we're also meeting with the widow and sharing, playing cards to share with her memories of Mozart, of, hey, that time that I sponsored him traveling to Vienna, or that time that um, I bought you know, his concerto and I uh, put it on or whatever. Because the theme of this game is every time you play a card, well, interestingly, you have a hand of cards. Every turn, you're going to play two cards. One, you activate the top action. The other, you activate the bottom action. Now, the bottom action is always gather a resource you'll use in the next round. So it's future planning. The top action is what am I going to do right now? And those actions are get more cards to upgrade your deck and get more powerful actions later on with more variety and flexibility. Um, <clears throat> or uh, move the Mozart token around the board to visit different cities and get bonuses there. Um, or 
uh, you know, do the thing I was just talking about in the present now, instead of in the past, um, work with composers to try to finish the unfinished work. And so every turn you're going to play one of these cards, you're only going to play a few cards over the course of the game. You get a lot done in a very short time in terms of the number of actions you do. And it's a brilliant design. Um, this is not the first time, uh, nor the only time in 2022, we saw a really great Euro where, hey, I play uh, the top action of one card and the bottom action of another card. Of course, that's been a real mainstay ever since Gloomhaven did it a few years ago, right? And it works wonderfully here. I love the mechanisms of this game. Even the area control game, which is usually kind of a turnoff, it's such a weird, interesting proxy battle instead of a straight-up battle. I found that engaging as well. My only complaint, the thing that keeps this out of my top five, is the theme. And this is something I think the vast majority of people won't care about. But I am a Euro theme aficionado, and I want my theme to work, and the theme doesn't work here. Because you can literally earn money in the present by working with the composers, and then spend that money 20 years ago to sponsor Mozart moving from one place to another. And I guess you could say, oh, this is just an abstraction of how the super-rich are so disconnected from their fortunes that money is meaningless. I guess, but uh, for me, it was a real disconnect. I love the theme of you know revisiting our memories and um, you know and using that to help the widow while also focusing on. But to me, the theme and the mechanisms really clashed and um, really kind of took me out of it. Uh, I can't say my wife didn't care about that at all, and I think most people won't care about it. So if you're like, oh, theme is nice just to set the stage, but I don't really care that much about it. Once the Euro economic machinations get going, then you're gonna love it. You're probably going to love it. But for me, I continue to care about theme, and I was a little let down by how it didn't really quite gel, which is why Lacrimosa comes in for me at number 11. Okay, now let's move on to number 10. Holiday Hijinks, episode one, the Kringle Caper. Now, unfortunately, I can't show you much of anything. There aren't, are there any pictures here on Board Game Geek? Oh, it shows a few of the different holiday hijinks you can get. Here's what happens when you open the, uh, the Kringle Caper. This is a micro game. You open it up, there are 18 cards. This is an escape room. The story is, um, Santa has returned um, to the North Pole after uh, he only brought back cookies. And one of the cookies has been stolen. And we are elves trying to crack the case of who stole Santa's cookie. And so you're going to play through 18 cards of escape room style puzzly stuff. And it's really nicely done. Now I should say it's definitely on the lower end, simpler, easier scale escape room stuff, which is maybe why Jen and I really enjoyed it. At no point did this game ever make us feel stupid. And like, oh, why can't you do it? And the interesting thing is, I should say, for people who don't like this, this game requires you use an app. Because once you think you've figured out a particular puzzle, and I'm not going to tell you all the puzzles, but there's all kinds of escape room type puzzles. There some I've seen before, some that were interesting twists, some I hadn't seen, but they were all well implemented, all fun and engaging. Again, a little bit on the easy side, you know, good for a group, for a family. But the thing is, once you've figured out a given card, what you have to do is you have to go to the app and type in the word that would be the answer. Uh, like, uh, uh, you know, one of the first ones um, requires you to know all the names of the range. Reindeer. And one of the reindeer, you have to type their name in. And if you type the correct one in, you will uh, it'll say, hey, draw card four now, right? I'm not going to tell you what the puzzle is to figure out whether it was Dasher or Donner or Blitzen or whatever, uh, but you had to figure that out. 
And so you have to have a smartphone to be able to play it. But if you have that, uh, it gives you an hour-long timer. Jen and I finished it. I think we finished it in like 38 minutes. And we felt pretty good. We only had to use one clue. And as soon as we were like, oh, of course, of course. Oh, that was a smart one. You got us, game. We we had a good time. It was the perfect Christmas Day caper. Um, now, uh, at the end of the day, Jen and I think we're both kind of over escape rooms. But we have the full set. And after we played that, just then said, okay, well, we're going to play the Valentine's Day one on Valentine's Day. My birthday's coming up. We're going to play the birthday one on that day. Uh, there's a 4th of July one. There's several of them. And it's 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 lovely. It's charming. It's very nicely done. And it comes in at number 10 uh, as a one-time play. And then you give it away as a gift. Makes a perfect Christmas gift. Uh, number 10, Holiday Hijinks, number one, The Kringle Caper. Okay, then let's move on to number nine on the list. Ballada, which is Bards Recording Epic Heroes Journeys. This is a very sharp roll and write. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, it's not a roll and write. It's a flip and fill because every round there are three decks. You draw a card from each of them. One of the decks tells you a landscape, whether it is mountains or forests or deserts. Um, and the other two cards say, hey, what will you draw into the mountain, or the forest, or the desert. So you might say, oh, well, hey, uh, a key and a monster and mountain shows up. So that means I've got to pick on my little sheet of paper that represents the hero's journey that my, that I'm going to write a, an epic um, ballad about. On one of the mountains, I have to write either the monster or the sword. And after I do that, I know, well, hey, I've got two more mountains. And so who knows what we're going to call them. Everybody makes the same choice. It's a bingo-style game. Everybody looks at that. Everybody makes their choice as best they can. And then we draw three more cards. And, oh, now it's a desert. And it could be a princess and a key. And it's going to go in a desert. So of my remaining deserts, am I going to put a princess or a key there? Very simple. Very easy to teach. But surprisingly crunchy. I was really impressed by this one. Honestly, I didn't expect it to be very interesting. But... I found it incredibly engaging from start to finish. It's two halves. You start off with the first half, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that, I mean, once you fill all the spaces in, you will then tell the story of your hero. Oh, my hero started out by finding a key and a sword. Then they fought a lowly level one monster. Now, that's a huge waste of a sword. Yeah, because a sword could take out a level five monster. So you have to decide, am I going to save the sword or am I going to use it to beat the monster? If I don't use it, then the hero will take damage. But don't worry, because I'll let the, the hero came to a monster, but ran because uh, he didn't, um, and then came to a level 3 monster and ran some more um, because he wasn't quite ready. Uh, and then he um, he uh, did some more training and eventually found a fountain. So, if, um, if I ran away from monsters and I took like 4 damage in that example, when I get to the uh, fountain, I get to heal. And for all the healing I do, I get uh, points. The same as if I'd wasted my sword to kill the monsters. So that's just a fun little example of okay, um, depending on where I put my swords, depending on where I put my um, uh, monsters, depending on where I put my fountains, depending on where I put my treasure chests, my princess, my uh, dragon, and all the various things that um, we're going to place here, um, ultimately, and again, you can make plans. Okay, I'm going to put this sword here because I'm going to put it right for because ultimately I want to put the boss right there because I need two swords to beat a boss, and I'll have this other sword, but then... What if the boss doesn't can't be in that mountain or that the when the boss eventually shows up? Oh, you got to put a boss in a desert. 
okay, I'll put a boss in the desert because I still have the chance of putting a warp in the mountain. And if I put the warp in the mountain, then I could warp the boss to the mountain so it were perfect as I planned it out. So every step of the way, you're making informed guesses about that may or may not work depending on what the cards will give you. Um, the, the art of this game is lovely. The decisions are engaging and interesting. You actually play through two sides of the piece of paper. First, there's the daytime, and then there's the nighttime. And the damage you've taken carries over, and the sword you've earned carries over. And there's a bit more complexity. Keys can be used for different things. Swords can be used for different things. Uh, and I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, Jen thought it was okay. She thought it was a little bit too simple. And it's, it's funny, too. Um, Jen kind of got the impression I think is wrong. Um, they said, well, you know, it just seemed like all the choices were really obvious. Um, and yet, uh, and I, so I just did the best I could with the choices that I made. And I'm like, well, so did I. That's just you in every game. And the thing is, the choices were obvious. You and I did radically different things, and I won. So it, it wasn't, the choices weren't obvious, because I made better choices than you, because I won. And to me, it was very satisfying. Jen, I don't know why, she just couldn't quite see it. Uh, but to me, it was a nice, fun, thematic little thing. Uh, definitely a filler. Takes about 10, maybe 15 minutes once you've got the uh, the gist of it. And just fun, a series of kind of tension-filled... Well, okay, I can go for this. Oh, please, please, when that boss comes up, it's got to be desert. It's got to be desert. Yes! Okay, this is going to be an awesome ballad I'm about to sing in Ballada, which comes in at number nine on the list. Okay, then let's talk about number eight. Delicious. Now, this is a roll and write from Pencil First Game. Eduardo Baraf and Steve Finn. This is a group of people that I absolutely adore. I'm always happy to see what they're coming up with next. And this was a very, very sharp... Uh, Again, not a roll and write because there's no dice. Instead, every round, two cards are going to be drawn from two different decks, the upper and the lower deck. And what happens is every player looks at these two cards, and each card are going to have random... Um, the cards represent vegetables, and random chips are drawn out of a bag that represent tools or fruits. And so, this is an entwined drafting game. Do I want the carrots and, berry and berries on the top, or do I want the broccoli and spade on the bottom? I've got to pick one. And then once I make that choice, and everybody makes that choice, I am then going to fill up my board. If I took something from the top, I have to put the carrots in my top containers, or on my bottom containers from the bottom. If I end up getting berries or fruits, I have to put them in the, old, in the special fruit thing that works very different than all the vegetable stuff. If I do tools, I can put them anywhere, but I'm restricted to where the tools are. So, um, this is a game where every, I mean, you're, you are trying to fill a bathtub and boots and a wheelbarrow and a suitcase and, a, and an actual planter box full of seeds to grow the best. And each one of these different things fills a different way. One of them, they all have to be the same. The other one has to be unique pairs. One of them, everything has to be unique. It's simple, it's clean, it's elegant, it's fast, and it is fun. I like this one quite a bit. Jen thought it was a little bit too lightweight for her. She's kind of gotten more into the habit of these more big, crunchy rolling rights that we've been seeing more and more of these days. But for me, oh man, this is such a wonderful, charming, relaxing, easy, laid-back, simple-to-teach, fun-to-play, um, entwine-drafting, uh, flip-and-fill. And I liked it quite a bit. Number eight on the list is delicious. Then let's go on to a number seven exhibition, the 20th century. Um, I'm from Cornet Van uh, Morsel. Oh man, I was going to look up how to pronounce your name. I always say Corn. I know that's wrong. I think it's Cornet. Um, 
Oh, I ran out of time because I'm actually running out of time, folks. I got to speed up. But anyway, uh, regardless, from a designer, uh, publisher Koala Games, he's got a couple of co-designers. Um, Jen, I like this one a lot. At its heart, this is a very uh, simple, straightforward card drafting game. Where is an image showing the board set up? Right. There we go. There we go. That'll do. All righty. So um, there is a grid of cards that represent um, every year of the 20th century from 1900 to 1999. And they are put in um, a 3x5 grid, and at the top of each column, there are um, world locations for the different continents of the world. You know, Asia, Africa, uh, Europe, etc., etc. And on your turn, you have a little, you have a blimp or a car or whatever, you have a little meeple. You, whatever column you're in, you pick one of the cards from that column, whatever... Um, region, whatever color that column is associated with, you then move to that column. That will be where you take your next card next turn. But in the meantime, whatever card you took, you then have to add to your little exhibition. And the expedition exhibitions has rules. Everything has to be in ascending order. Once you put like a uh, 1924, you can't put 1925 to the left of it, even if you want to. And there's other rules. One of the exhibitions has to be all on the same continent. Um, one of the exhibitions, they have to be... Like, um, there can't be more than 10 years between them, uh, stuff like that. And it is fun, it is puzzly, and every one of these cards is a real-world invention that happened in that particular um, nation and that particular year, and I love it. I mean, Jen and I were having as much fun playing the game as we were just reading the um, origin of all, all kinds of inventions that we just take for granted in our day-to-day -day lives. And it is sharp. Now, inevitably, there will come points where, oh, um, I'm going to take a card that I can't play anywhere, or I don't want to play, because it'll mess up what I'm actually trying to build in this particular exhibit. So up to three times, you can put cards off into storage, which is just going to lose you points, but you will do that. And we are racing to fill things in while following all the cool, puzzly, restrictive um, rules for like ascending rules and matches and all kinds of stuff. It is great. It makes history come alive. It is a fun, elegant, smart design. And both Jen and I enjoyed it quite a bit. We are definitely getting into some of the most fun games we played this month, and uh, Exhibition 20th Century definitely ranks pretty high at number 7. Liked it a lot. Okay, then let's go on to number 6, Mysterio. Okay, this is from Pythagoras, and um, from the design duo of uh, Rolla and Costa? The Roller Coaster? I like to call them. I don't think anybody else calls them that. <clears throat> and this is a game where we are competing to contribute the most to building um, a, a great, wonderful, uh, real-world basilica, I believe, in Portugal, if I recall correctly. And we're doing it by harvesting resources, convert, um, you know, uh, calling upon the favors of rich nobles, and um, you know, basically fulfilling resources to score points by building up the basilica. All you know, Standard stuff. Pretty straightforward stuff. What's interesting about the game is we do it through dice, because every round, we roll our dice, and we take turns worker placing them. And this game reminds me a lot of a game I played many, many years ago called Alia Octa Est. One of the ways you could use uh, dice worker placement in Alia Octa Est was that, hey, if you put a six down and then I go to the same area as you and I put a three, I push your six to the right to make room for my three. But then if somebody else puts a six, they go to the right of my six. So the lower the value and the weaker the die is, the quicker you get to go and you push the bigger, more powerful dice further on. And now this takes that idea and makes it work really interestingly in one, two, three, four, 
five, if I recall, different worker placement spots on the board where they all take that idea but do interesting stuff with them as we gather the resources to try to help build the local town, build the basilica, gather all the resources we need, get the special set collection decorations we can do, gather you know the wood and all that, and it works great. You have small dice and big dice that represent um, you know, regular you know, regular workers who have to follow the rules, and the big dice can break the rules. Over the course of the game, you get more big dice, but then you start losing them, so there's a really interesting overall flow to the game. You um, can sacrifice points to manipulate the dice as you need. It works great. And, um, and it's just really sharp. Now... I loved the dice worker placement. This kind of reminds me of last year's Teletum, a game that had a really wonderful and deep and um, really fresh, modern-feeling core action selection mechanism, the, uh, the dice pushing and bumping and all the stuff that we do, to drive a more traditional, hey, gather goods to fulfill recipes to score points. The second half of the game was okay. The first half of the game was amazing. And on the whole, both Jen and I very much enjoyed number six, uh, Mysterio. Okay. Now, let's talk about number five, the uh, most far-out game we played this month, Precognition, which is set in a post-apocalypse future where humanity has been all but wiped out, although some members of humanity have mutated into super-intelligent protectors of the regular humanity. And um, what we're trying to do is sail down a river to reach uh, you know, a, a safe haven where we can start rebuilding. And um, that's the theme. But honestly, this is a very abstract game. Uh, strictly speaking, you're trying to collect little meeples that represent people. They're sick, you have to heal them. Um, or they are in danger and you have to protect them. <clears throat> As we sail further and further down the river and deal with different obstacles along the way. But the whole thing that drives this game is cards. Because... Every turn, you have access to four cards. Two of them in your hand, and two of them face up in front of you. Um... Of the two face up in front of you, one you will play for yourself, and one you will give to your opponent. Um, and the same is true for the two cards in your hands. So you've got all these four cards. Of the four cards, you're going to play one of them. You're going to make your opponent to your, to your left play one of them. And then you're going to give the other two cards that didn't get mixed up into all this to the opponent to your right. And um, and then everybody reveals all the cards they chose. Hey, this is a card that my opponent gave me. This is the card I played. And now here's the deal. Because I know you have to give me one of those face-up cards, right? You're to my right. You're going to give me one of those cards. I can see, oh, there's a blue and a yellow. I've got a yellow. If you give me that yellow and I play this yellow, if I get a matching pair, I'll get double the resources out of this. So do I think you're going to give me that yellow or are you going to give me that blue? If you give me that blue, what, how, how's that going to combo with these two cards? You give me the okay, I'm going to take a chance. Because the other thing is, I think, oh yeah, you get bonus points if you hand out yellows. And so I know you are incentivized to give me the yellow, so I think that yellow is going to happen. I predict that's what you're going to do. I'm going to use some precognition. I'll play the yellow. I find out what you gave me. You gave me the yellow. Boom! I have a huge turn. And the game is full to the brim of look to the neighbor to the left, look to the neighbor to the right, see what all their objectives are, what they get bonuses for, see what they're trying to collect for themselves, and start making plans. What am I going to give to them? What are they going to give to me? Because the other thing is, remember, two of those cards I'm going to give to the player to my right, those will become the face-up cards. The player to my right is going to have to give me one of those next turn. So if I'm thinking next turn, hey, if I give him these two greens, that means next turn he'll be forced to give me a green. And if I can get a green next turn, yes. 
So this game has layer upon layer of really hardcore planning, and I thought it was mind-expanding in the best way, and I loved it. My wife liked it, but this game, more than any other game I can think of in recent years, so forced us to pay attention to each other. And Jen tends not to do that. Jen just likes to focus on her own little garden and just do stuff. For her, it was a bit too much trying to double think what your opponent is going to do. But me, I love that kind of stuff. So for me, it ranks very high. For Jen, a little bit less. And uh, combined, it comes in at number five, Precognition. Okay, then let's go on to number four, The Skulls of Sedlik, which is a game from Button Shy. And honestly, just the base game of Skulls of Sedlik would not have rated that high for me. It would not have made it into the top four space. But Jen and I played it with all the expansions turned on, and oh my goodness, it became a wonderful game of card drafting and pyramid building. On your turn, you're either going to draft a card that has two skulls that represent different members of society, or you're going to play a card into your growing pyramid. And you're trying to get certain types of skulls next to others. You want nobles to be above the peasants. You want merchants to be next to the peasants. You want um, pirates to be away from the merchants. All kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of rules. And when you play with all the expansions, it becomes a fiendishly engaging and fun puzzle trying to draft with really strict rules and then trying to build um, on top of, of, of your tower. We liked this one a lot. And we think it's a total keeper if you um, get the additional expansions. With the base game, we thought it was a little bit too simple, very gateway. Um, the, the rules weren't really engaging enough to keep our attention. But um, once you turn on all the other stuff, oh man, Skulls of Sedlik gets very, very special. And the whole game fits in a tiny little wallet, which is Button Shy's MO, uh, which is why that comes in at number four of the month, Skulls of Sedlik, with all the expansions turned on. Alrighty, let's move on to number three, Simplicity. Wow, this really surprised me. This made my top 10 hidden gems of 2022. Um, both Jen and I are super impressed by it. It is at its heart a very fast playing SimCity meets King Domino style game. Every turn, you are going to place your worker uh, to grab a tile. The further down the row, the uh, more flexibility you get, the more powerful your move, but the more likely you will be last in turn order in the next round. Very King Domino. Works there, works here. Um, then you take the tile and you look at the symbol that was next to the tile and that tells you where you can place the tile on the main board. And um, what you're trying to do is you're either trying to get pairs of your own buildings next to each other or you're trying to join growing collections of the same type of building, whether they're your buildings or somebody else. <clears throat> and the thing is, you get five turns in this game. It's the ultimate filler. You get to make five choices, um, five drafts, five tiles, so every turn is incredibly deep and crunchy and so rich, and I was blown away by this, especially when played as a two- or three-player game. I have to say, I've only played as a two-player game. As two or three, each player plays two teams. And so you get to make a, a, you two choices. And at the end of the game, Kanitia style, your worst team is going to be what's scoring. So really, in a two-player game, you're making 10 choices. Um, but I would love to play this as a higher player count game where, oh my gosh, okay, I can go for this uh, pair for myself, and that would block somebody else from expanding. Or I could try to get on this other suburb over here that seems like everybody's committing to. And so I'll undercut all their points. So which of these two? Well, if I take this one, I'm more likely to be first next turn. Ah, I only get five of these choices. 
It's neat, 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 neat. My only complaint is the default rules, if lower player counts, has this little demolition thing that you have to use. If you're the last player, you get to destroy a tile, and that was unnecessarily cutthroat. Jen and I did not like that at all. I went on Board Game Geek, I asked uh, the, the the publisher designer, and they came up with a variant and said, well, hey, if you don't like that, it won't break the balance if you just want to do this instead. And so now, with that, with my little Rotto variant, it is excellent. It is a keeper. It's number three of the month. It does so much with so little. Such a hidden gem. Number three, simplicity. All right, number two. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Everybody knows about Carnegie. I am very late to the party on this one, but I finally got a chance to play it. Very blown away by it. It made it just came in at number 10 in my top 10 games of the year. Uh, everything that everyone has said is true. It is such a brilliant mix of mechanisms. Goes to show why Javier Georges is in my top 10 designers of all time. This just reinforces it. Um, my only complaint about the game is that... Uh, we, I would love to see more variety, more interesting ideas in the departments. As it is right, and as I understand it, there is an expansion that will be coming soon that adds a whole bunch more departments. And if that delivers on what I'm hoping, the only weakness of this game, there's not enough variety in the types of effects you get from departments, this might push even higher into my top 10 for 2022. But as it is, both Jen and I were really blown away. And also, I played as a solo game, and I was blown away by one of the most complex, um, interesting, intricate, and unique engine-building games I've ever played. Number two on the list, Carnegie. And finally, folks, number one, another game that made my top 10 shortlist for the year, Shapers of Gaia from WizKids Games. This has got to be, um, well, the best engine builder of 2022. One of the best engine builders I've ever built. Uh, in a nutshell, the core gameplay is very simple. On your turn, we are trying to rebuild Gaia after devastation. We come out of our vault. We've got our little characters who are moving around from spot to spot. And we are trying to bring back a flora and fauna. If on my turn I'm going to bring an animal back, there are several cards that represent different animals. I will pick one. I will put them in the little biome I'm in. I will spend the resources as necessary to do that. Alternatively, on my turn, I can have the helper robot move into an unbuilt space and they will build a new type of biome so that we could then later on follow on and put more animals in those spaces. And over the course of the game, the world gets revamped and and more and more animals show up. The important thing is, every time I bring a new animal into the world, I hold on to the card for that animal, and I add it to one of three different engines I am building every step of the way. And then I activate that card and every other card in that engine. So if I got a Crystal Cave card, I add it to my other Crystal Cave cards, and I activate all of them in any order. So when you are drafting these cards, both because they represent the different types of animals you want to put on the board, because there are high-level objectives of getting certain carnivores in positions, or, or omnivores, or herbivores, or whatever. But I'm also I'm trying to get the right animal for that. But I'm also trying to get the right animal to add to one of my engines, so I can run that engine and get a huge payday. This game has a very simple rule set, and yet it is one of the richest and uh, deepest uh, engine builders we have played in a long time. It's also gorgeous. 
Genesis, it also has an incredibly deep and robust, unique player power system where everybody unlock as we um, get more animals on the planet, we unlock more and more special powers, almost to the point where we're playing different games. We score things differently. Um, there's great representation in the game. The presentation is fantastic. Uh, this game is absolutely phenomenal. Like I said, it made my top 10 of the year, Shapers of Gaia, and it was my number one game we played in December. And phew, that was, what, my 21 games, and I think with Shay and Kimberly, that's like 31 games, folks, you just got to hear about. Hopefully, amongst all of those, that's like a game for every day of the month, uh, something interesting might have uh, popped onto your radar. And if so, hey, let me know down in the comments. But anyway, we have made it once more. And so, once more, in closing, I have to say thank you to all my contributors, uh, even when they take the month off, they still make the channel a better place. And also, thank you to sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. And finally, as always, thanks to all of these people right here. The people who actually keep Rotto running by backing me on Patreon or um, via Twitch subscriptions or YouTube memberships. Thank you all so much. I, I cannot say how much it means to me and everybody else. Uh, my wife, uh, it's, it's, it's such a joy and we're looking forward to bringing you more stuff in the new year. But folks, you know how these roundups end. There are some very high level special backers who get a special thanks in the form of a shout out. So let's get to it. Uh, thanks, Dennis Inti and Caitlin Albert, Dave Salvatore, Selma Lee, Jay Huber, Heather Rudarian, Mike Bloom, Cameron Zafar, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank uh, you. Marlon Cruz, uh, Marilyn, Sharon Laubach, uh, Jeff Glazen, Stacy Lee, Eric Z, Martin Griffin, Graham Wallace, Lex, Dan Halligan, you are all the best people. Um, Dr. Fu, Charles Hill, Chris Steele, Blake Wilson, Ben, CK Mom, Cobra Misfit, Steve Ercolini, Jeremy Schroeder Hansen, and Cheryl Howard. I lied earlier. You're actually the best people. You're my favorites. And uh, finally, uh, uh, Kisa Griffin, Denmawa, 2030CE, Jerry Reese, Hans Peter Back, Victory BHG, Mom Gamer, Paul Martinez, Davy Davis, Aista Samuelonis, Adrian Dong, Chris Arnold, Tom Cohen, and Marianne Gonzalez. Everybody, give a thanks wherever you are to all those people because um, they help make this show run, as do the rest of them. All right, folks, that's it. Another roundup is done, and I'm exhausted. Subscribe if you haven't. Click on another thing. But I throat. I, I need a throat lozenge. <coughs> no, not surprisingly. That was a lot. Are you still here? You just want to watch me suck on this thing? Oh. I like butterscotch. These things are amazing. Mmm. <laughs>